last week we were dealing with one side of a coin and this week we're going to deal with the other side of the coin so if you didn't hear last week's talk it would be helpful if you could listen to that um, and uh, for those who, who hear last week's but, but missed this week's it would be good for them as well because they're two sides of the same coin what we're trying to do is really understand how Christianity works this is a big issue isn't it how, how can I live in a way that pleases God how does Christianity actually work well we saw last week that this church or these churches in Galatia are in the middle of a great crisis a great conflict is going on um, we have two different groups in, in these churches that are in danger of ripping each other's heads off and uh, if you think that language is too aggressive look at verse 15 we read it together Paul says to them if you keep on biting and devouring each other watch out or you will be destroyed by each other they're behaving like animals they're at each other's throats this is a Christian church and they're at loggerheads And so, this is, what, this is how we uh, portrayed it last week. We were talking about the rumble in the jungle. Muhammad Ali versus George Foreman. 1974 was it. In the red corner, we have the Judaizers. The religious group. For them, rules are everything. We, we, we want to keep them and we want to enforce them. We describe those guys as the religious group, if you like. In the blue corner, on the other side, we have these new Gentile Christians. And uh, for these guys, rules don't matter at all. And so we call them the relaxed group, because it begins with R. So the conflict is between these two guys who are slugging it out. They're at each other's throats. The religious group, rules are everything. And the relaxed group, rules don't matter at all they're the two extremes and what's interesting is that both of these sides think that Christianity is something that it isn't and they're both wrong and what is interesting for us and I think part of the reason God has included this in his word for us is that these two extremes are there all the way through church history and for us as Christian believers we will be in danger throughout the whole of our lives of veering to one of these extremes or the other we might not fully get to the extreme but we will be in danger of departing from the gospel and moving in one direction or another so really everything that I want to say to you last week and this week is about keeping us in line with the gospel that's why Paul was writing to these churches to keep them in line with the gospel really interestingly uh, we, we were looking at this last week and on Monday morning I got an email from I suppose I can call him an old friend a man called Colin Smith some of you will recognise that name when I first became uh, involved in preaching and uh, being a minister we did a series in our church called Unlocking the Bible and Colin Smith, the Scottish guy, uh, wrote that series and he allowed us to use it with his permission. Um, I, got an e I subscribed to his website, so I get an email every Monday morning with a little sort of thought for the day. 
And on Monday morning, the email came through, and do you know what it was about? This. I couldn't believe it. It kept landing in my inbox on Monday morning, 9 o'clock, and I thought, I'm going to have to tell people that next Sunday. And this is how Colin Smith explains these issues. He uses two different theological words, the words I've used, but he frames it this way. Um, these are big words that end in shun. These are big words that end in ism. <laughs> On the, on the left-hand side there, he, he would call that group uh, legalists. And this group are anti-nominians. I should explain, we might, legalism is really lawism. We love the law, we love rules, we just want to keep them and we want to smash everyone else and make them keep them. We love rules. Anti-nominianism is the complete opposite. It's made up of two words in the Greek. Anti means against, and nomos is the word for law. So an antinomian is someone who hates rules, doesn't like them, wants to get rid of them. So these two sides are opposites, legalists and antinomians. This is the conflict, and they're the theological words for it. Let me uh, show you, or read to you, what Colin Smith said in his email to me on Monday morning. Well, it wasn't just to me, it was probably to about half a million other people. But uh, this is what he says. The gospel always lives in the presence of two enemies. One is called legalism. And the other is called antinominianism. I'm going to struggle to say that. Legalism says. There it is. Obey God's commands so that you may believe in him. Or to put it another way, you have to start keeping God's law in order to come to Christ. If you're going to become a Christian, clean up your life first. Leave your sins in order to come to Christ and don't think that you can come to him until you do. Colin Smith says this, the problem here is obvious. If you have to clean up your life, in order to come to Christ, how will anyone ever be able to come? Antinomianism says the opposite. Believe God's promise so that you may ignore his commands. Can you see the subtle difference between the two? One is saying, keep the rules and then you'll be able to come. The other one is saying, come and then you won't have to keep the rules. Two extremes. Colin Smith says, in other words, if you come to Christ, don't worry about keeping the law. Trust in Christ. Don't start cleaning up your life. As long as you believe, nothing else matters. In every church, there will be people who, having made a decision to trust Christ, live carelessly, and sin presumptuously, they go on doing it because they think it doesn't really matter. Do you know what the Gospel says? The Gospel says, believe God's promises so that you will be able to keep his commands. That is different to both of those extremes. Last week, 
we were thinking about what is wrong with being religious and legalist. We were dealing with that last week, so I'm not going to recap that. And last week, if you thought that I was sounding like an antinomian, good. <laughs> this week, we're going to deal with the right-hand side, and if you think today that I sound like a legalist, good. <laughs> because that's the challenge. The gospel is neither one or the other of these extremes, and when you emphasise the one, you sound like the other, but we're going to try and plot some middle ground. The first thing I want to do is ask a couple of questions, though. And the first question is this. We, we've got to ask this question. If, if, if Jesus has come into the world to save people, and if, if forgiveness comes to us through the cross, what on earth does the law, what place does the law have, God's rule? When I say law, I suppose you could sum it up by talking about the Ten Commandments, but I mean God's moral law. What place does the law have in the life of a Christian believer? It's a good question, isn't it? The legalist would say, it's everything. The antinomian would say, it's nothing, we're free from that, we're not under law anymore, we're under grace. So, what's the right answer to this question? I want to give you three visual aids uh, to think about. And uh, here they are. The first way I want you to think about the law is that it's a mirror that reflects God's character. And this is really important. I don't want you to think, and I, I don't want to be irreverent here, speaking about God in a flippant way, but I, want you to, I don't want you to think that God got up one day and thought, I'll dream up Ten Commandments. And he just kind of picked ten that he thought were a good idea at the time. You think that's what happened? No. The laws that God has given to us are, in one sense, an expression of what he himself is really like. He didn't just make them up because he thought they were a good idea. The law that God gives to us is a reflection of his character. When God says to us, I don't want you to tell lies, he's not saying that to be pragmatic, he's saying that because he is utterly truthful. When God says, I want you to be faithful and not unfaithful, why does he say that? Because he himself is faithful. When God says, I want you to be loving, it's because he's loving. When he says, I want you to be pure, it's because he's pure. God doesn't ask us to do anything that isn't already just part of his character. If you want to know what God is like, you could look at God's law, and it's like a mirror that reflects what God is like. It isn't some arbitrary thing. God doesn't just make it up because he thought it was a good idea. God's law is a mirror that reflects his character. The second thing about the law is, though, it is an x-ray that exposes our character. That's a different thing altogether, isn't it? I went to the dentist, uh, I, don't, I only go to the dentist once every ten years or so, because I hate anyone fiddling with any part of my body, really. I don't like going to hairdressers, I don't like going to a dentist. It's like invading my personal space, get out my mouth. But I went to the dentist, Jane has a little thing where she pays, like, whatever it is a month and all the dental treatments free that's because she's got good teeth to start with 
I said to my dentist, can you put me on a scheme like that so that I don't have to keep paying these big bills? He said, we'll have to do a little bit of research first. So he, he, he sat me down in his chair, he got the x-ray machine, put it on my nose, put these strange things in my mouth, took some x-rays, and then he gave me a bill. Well, a quote. He said, if you want to be on this scheme, your teeth are so bad inside that you need to spend £3,000. you believe that? And then, then we'll put you on the scheme. I haven't been to the dentist since. And one day that's going to bite me. Ha <laughs> bite me. It's not really going to bite me. I, I feel like I've got a bit of toothache, but I, I don't go to the dentist because it's like £500 every time you sit in the chair, isn't it? X-rays reveal what's there underneath, don't they? God's law is a reflection of his character, but when you hear God's law, it is like an x-ray. It's like God shines his light into your heart. And just imagine God was the heavenly doctor and his law is the x-ray. And then he puts, you know, they put it up on those little white boxes, don't they? And he says, come and have a look at what your insides look like. I've got it all here on the x-ray. And you'd be, well, I would be. I don't really want to look. Do you know what Paul says in the book of Galatians? The law is like a schoolmaster or a teacher that will lead you to Jesus. When you understand the law rightly, you will realise that you cannot keep it. The legalists thought they could keep it, but they thought that because they changed the law into being all about externals instead of the heart. When you really understand God's law, God's moral character, it, this is the deal, isn't it? You know, when I stand next to someone else, I can look good. Because I, I, I like to stand next to people who are not as good as me, because that makes me look good. We all have that in human nature, don't we? But when I stand next to Jesus, when I stand next to God, when I measure up against his character... I fall very far short. And the law exposes us. Why does it expose us? Well, it exposes us so that we will go to the very place where healing is found, which is Jesus. The law is not an exam to pass. The law is an x-ray that shows you what your heart is really like so that you'll run to Jesus for forgiveness and help. There's a third illustration, and this is really against the antinomians. The law is like a train track. What do I mean by that? If you're a Christian believer, if you are trusting in Jesus for your salvation, forgiveness, new life, if God is transforming you to be like him, God's moral law, surely, is what you will increasingly become like, isn't it? It's almost like in the gospel God is not just giving us the direction that we must go in but he's giving us the power inside to move in that direction as well. I want you to think about this. The law of God, the moral law of God is like train tracks and the Holy Spirit is the engine. 
and your life is the train. And if you're living, if you're relying on the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God will give you the power to move, not off the track, but along the track of God's moral law. That's what this fruit of the Spirit's all about. Love, joy, peace. The Holy Spirit will make you like Jesus. So there is a place for the law of God. There is a place for that moral law. It reflects his character. It exposes our poor character. And it is the track that God's Spirit will drive us along as we increasingly become like Jesus. Colin Smith tells a great story about a thief who was in prison for stealing. And while he was in prison, he became a Christian. He trusted in Jesus. And he was very glad to be forgiven. And when he came out of prison, I hope I'm remembering the story right, he went to a church, and on the wall around the church, they had little plaques with the Ten Commandments on them. And one of the plaques that was right in his eye line is he sat in church and it said, You shall not steal. And he's a thief. He's become a Christian. He's sitting there and he thinks, That's all I need, that is. You shall not steal. How on earth am I going to live a new life? It's all right in prison when you're sat in a cell, but now I'm out of prison. All my old instincts are there. I've, I've trusted in Jesus, but how on earth am I going to obey that commandment? And he sees it as a negative. You shall not steal. And as he sits there and he's listening to the service and he keep, his eyes keep wandering to the plaque on the wall, it suddenly dawns on him that it's not negative. It suddenly dawns on him that this is a promise. You shall not steal. It suddenly dawns on him that it's not a rule to obey, but it's a promise. God's Spirit is within you. You shall not steal anymore. He will help you. That's the trap, but God's Spirit is the engine. And he suddenly realised, I can do it. Not in my strength, but with his help, I shall not steal. You see the difference? One, one minute he's thinking about it as a rule to keep. The next minute he realises, actually, if God's Spirit is within me, this is a promise for me to fulfil with his help. I shall not steal. It's a great illustration. So the law is a mirror, it's an x-ray, and it's like a train track for God's Spirit to drive you along. What about these antinominians? How can you spot antinominianism? How can you spot it? I want to give you a few headers here. If you're taking notes, it'll be useful, because I want you to remember this. I found this deeply challenging this week and I can see signs in my own heart and life of this antinominianism. I, I can see it in my own heart. And uh, so let's have a look. Uh, antinominianism. It uses grace to excuse a sinful life. In its worst form, an antinominion will say, I can believe and do whatever I like. This is using God's grace as an excuse for doing wrong. 
And you know this was an error in the early church before the Bible was even finished. Uh, you can read about this in Revelation chapter 2. But the, the, the last book before Revelation, Jude, it's just one page, it's only one chapter. Let me just read it to you so I don't misquote it. Um, my fingers can get there quick enough. Jude writes, For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men, who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Imagine that, in a church. Men coming in and teaching, God forgives you, doesn't matter how you live. Why don't you just indulge? God will forgive you anyway. Before the Bible was even finished. That's what our God's grace was being twisted. And clearly it was an issue in Galatia for these churches because Paul lists in Galatians chapter 5 all those vices. But there is something more subtle here. Antinomianism can use grace to excuse a sinful life. And we, we can say, oh yeah, we don't do those nasty things. But there's another side to this that's more subtle. An antinomian can say, I can believe in Jesus and not do what is right. So an antinomian can use grace as an excuse to sin. But an antinomian can also use God's grace as an excuse not to do the things he should be doing. That's more subtle, isn't it? Grace becomes an excuse for just sitting on your bum and doing nothing. Well, God's forgiven me. I don't need to seek to live a holy life. I've always wondered about the parable that Jesus told when he said there was a certain man who went off to a far country and he gave to his servants a coin it's the parable of the talents in some versions it says a minor and he picked ten of them and he gave them all one each and he said to them go and make a profit and then the, 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 the man comes back and he calls all the servants and he says to one what have you done he said here's your coin I've made ten more and he says well done you've done well and then another one comes in, how have you done? He said, ah, here's your coin, I've made five more. Well done, excellent work. And then another fellow comes in, cowering a bit, and a bit ashamed, a bit miserable. And he says to the man, I knew you were a hard man. So I wrapped it up in a piece of cloth and put it in a drawer at home, because I didn't want to lose it. And I've got it here. Imagine what Alan Sugar would say to that. <laughs> Get out, you're fired. He said, you've condemned yourself with your own words. You knew I was a hard man. Take his coin and give it to the others. I've often wondered about that parable. What on earth did Jesus tell that story for? You know, I think a lot of Christians can be like that guy. I've been forgiven. I'm just going to put it in the bottom drawer. I've got my ticket to heaven. I don't need to do anything or be anything. 
I'm just going to coast along. And what a shock. People like that are going to be in for one day. It isn't that good works can save a person, but good works are the fruit of someone who has been saved. How can you know Jesus and sit on your hands doing nothing? I've just wrapped it up in a cloth and put it on my drawer. The more I think about it, our Christianity bears little resemblance to the real deal. We excuse ourselves on the basis of grace while frittering our lives away in fruitlessness. Do you know what it says in the Bible? Without holiness, no one will see God. Jesus said, every tree that bears no fruit will be cut down. That sounds like pretty provocative language to me. If you are using grace to excuse doing nothing and neglecting your personal life and holiness, you haven't even begun to understand grace. Do you not know that grace includes the power to live a new life? It is not just about letting you off so you can coast. It is about lifting you up to live a new life with his help and strength and power. Real grace is power to change, not an excuse to lie down and do nothing. That's only the first one. We've got a few more to go through, so let me give you some more. Antinominians can do this as well. They can really emphasise the leading of God's Spirit, while at the same time neglecting the Bible. So this is what an antinomian says. I'm not interested in rules. I'm not under law anymore. That was for those miserable people in the Old Testament. I'm now under grace, and I only follow the promptings of God's Holy Spirit. I hear so many people say that. And you know what? It doesn't matter whether what God's Spirit allegedly prompts them to do. If it contradicts the Bible, it doesn't really bother them. If it contradicts common sense sometimes, it doesn't seem to bother them. The Spirit told me to do it, so I'm going to do it. This idea that somehow we have this kind of strange voice inside that prompts us to do certain things... Oh, I could talk for a long time about that, but let's move on. Antinominians always push for dramatic signs of God's power, but forget that Christianity is about character. The church in Corinth had this. They all wanted to speak in tongues and heal people and do miracles, and yet they were fighting with each other. Paul says, your services are a disgrace. They wanted the dramatic signs of God's power. God's with us. We're on the winning team. We're all supermen. And yet they were forgetting to be truthful, pure, honest. It doesn't sound very miraculous, that, does it? But it is, you know. When God's Spirit works in your heart and makes you like Jesus is, that is the biggest miracle of all. Sometimes antinomians can use this idea, oh, I did it because the Holy Spirit told me to do it. Do you know what? The Holy Spirit will never tell you to do anything if it contradicts his word. Antinomians can do this as well. They always highlight love and forget morality. It doesn't matter, does it, if you love people? 
you can really do what you like so long as there's love there. Doesn't it sound plausible, that? The most important thing is love. That's what Paul says here, isn't it? But they forget God's moral law. Doesn't really matter if you break the rules. It's all about love. Love covers a multitude of sins. How often that verse gets ripped out of context. So many times you hear people say this, you know, Christianity, it's all about love. We don't want rules or guidance or God's laws. That's for miserable people. That, if, as soon as you talk like that, you get accused of being a legalist. Don't talk to me about rules and God's laws. You must be a Pharisee. I just want to emphasise love. Do you know, there's truth in that, isn't there? But can you see how subtle it is? Here, here's another one. Antinomianism likes things easy and has no appetite for struggle. It wants instant fixes. It wants instant victory. There was a Greek man, wasn't there, called Stereos. I've no idea how to say his second name. Haji Ayanohono. Or something. Stelios. Let's call him Stelios. He started the easy group. Easy jet. Easy car. Easy money. Easy cinema. Easy bus. Easy pizza. Easy gym. Easy hotel. Loads of companies all begin with the word easy. Do you know what we've invented? Easy Christianity. I will obey Jesus as long as it fits with my plans. I'll obey Jesus as long as it's easy and nice and comfortable. But if the going gets tough, I'm off. I don't want it to be hard. Striving to be holy is for Pharisees. I'll leave that to the legalists. I don't want to be a legalist. I just want to take it easy. Antinomians... Antinominians like to pursue happiness but are actually afraid of being afraid. I need to explain that really. This world, it's almost like this is a cultural thing, isn't it? I just want to be happy. Jesus is there to make me happy. Not lead me through reality. But you know what? There is a place for fear in life. Fear is something that will protect you from harm. The Bible talks a lot about the fear of God. It doesn't mean slavish fear. It means healthy, reverent respect for God who is awesome. Do you know what? We've made God into our buddy. Instead of the God of glory who's full of majesty, glory, purity, holiness. And we think God's there just to make us happy and give us an easy life. And if we have something that kind of makes us a little bit uncomfortable, well, we must be sinning in some way because God doesn't let his people suffer. There are times in life when we will be afraid. The issue is where we go with those fears, isn't it? And the last one thing I wanted to say, antinomianism is very shallow. It likes things simple and can't cope with anything that's too heavy or serious. Do you know, 
I'm, I'm going to sound like a legalist now. I told you this would happen. Do you know what? I, I, I talk to a lot of people, and I've got to say, I, I had my uncle staying with us this week, my uncle David, my dad's older brother. And he was reminding me of some of the things we used to do as kids, you know, in Sunday school and different things. And it just dawned on me again, you know, people in the modern church now in 2011, they don't even know the Bible. They don't know the order of Bible books. They don't, they don't know about... They, they, what, what they, it's all of this stuff. They, I want it to be loving and easy and nice and friendly, but I don't want to work. I don't want to read a book. Show me a picture. <laughs> I don't want to pray. I don't want to wrestle with God. I don't want to work hard in my Christian life. That's for legalists and Pharisees. I just want to have an easy ride and then get to heaven at the end. And that's okay because God loves you anyway. Where is our hunger and thirst for righteousness gone? Where is our capacity for hard work and rigor, prayerfulness? I think we gave that up a long time ago so that we could look cool. We don't want to look like Pharisees, so we'll just go to the other end of the extreme and be really laid back. Let, let me ask you, those of you who are Christians, when did you last study the Bible with any degree of seriousness? When did you go to God and say, God, show me your glory. Teach me. Make me like Jesus. Anti-Nominianism is really shocking, isn't it? <laughs> Legalism is bad. Can you spot the subtle swing? Do you know, all of these things are really good things that are twisted to become bad things, aren't they? And what's the overall effect of all this? Christians, professing Christians, who look no different from people in the world. Christians who separate their faith and their lifestyle. I want Jesus as my saviour, but I don't want to follow him as my king. And do you know what the worst of it is? It makes the gospel look lame. Antinomians think they love grace and the gospel, but they don't realise that grace transforms. We don't want a church that's legalistic. But we don't want to use grace as an excuse for dodging holiness, do we? What we want is Christ and his spirit and the gospel. Let me ask you a question. Of these two extremes, which one do you think is the biggest threat to the church in 2011. Do you think that legalism, insisting on and enforcing rules, or do you think antinomianism, trying to throw out rules altogether and live as if there were none? Which one do you think is the biggest threat to the church today in 2011? Antinomianism. I'm sorry it's a big weird. I didn't make it up. Martin Luther made it up. This one, do you think? I think maybe 50 years ago, legalism was the issue. Because, you know, don't smoke, don't drink, don't do it. You want to look like a Christian. And people kind of got sucked into that, you know, measuring spirituality by all the things you don't do. That's legalism. 
That isn't the case now. We've gone so far to the other end of the spectrum. Hey, I can smoke and I can drink. <laughs> it's like we go right to the other end of the spectrum because we don't want to look like a legalist. And the biggest threat to the church now, I think, is that we completely disregard God's moral law. In our great desire to be accepting, we've forgotten that God is holy. I think it fits with our culture. There's no God, there's no absolutes, there's no rules. It's the challenge of making everything easy. We just want an easy kind of, I just want to sign a card to become a Christian and once I'm in I'll put it in my back pocket and carry on living just like I was before. I just want it to be easy. Don't give me any hardship or difficulty. Who wants a gospel like that? No wonder churches are empty because the message that we preach is irrelevant. If Christians are no different to people in the world, why bother with Christianity? What people in the world need is a gospel that works and changes them and makes them what God wants them to be. We've just got a few minutes. I just want to link this back to Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit. How does this all relate to Galatians chapter 5? Can I just give you a few headings? There's stuff for you to think about here, and for me as well, to think about. Number one, can I say this? There is no formula for living the Christian life. Sometimes we might wish there was. But you can't go somewhere and someone say, if you do this and you do this and you do this, you can tick the boxes and that's the formula. There is no formula. Why? Because it's not a system. What does Paul say? There is no formula. Paul says, verse 16, so I say, live by the Spirit. Oh Paul, give us some more than that, won't you? (laughs) you can't have a formula can you for something that is living Paul says live by the spirit of God in chapter 5 and verse 6 we dealt with it last week for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision at any value the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love if you want a formula that's it that's all I can give you faith expressing itself through love walk by the spirit it is life not a system in in a funny kind of way both of these extremes are trying to make it easy a legalist wants to just tick boxes An antinomian just wants to ignore all the boxes. The gospel calls us to live. It's about life. Following and living in the power of God's spirit. Working on us from the inside out. So there's no formula for living the Christian life. The second thing I want to say is. Christianity is not about being right. 
all the time. Christianity is not about it being easy all the time. Christianity is about having a heart for God, isn't it? Are we just trying to follow a system? No. Christianity is about having a heart for God Himself. Are you just trying to keep rules? God calls you to love Him with all your heart and strength and soul and mind. He's awesomely brilliant. He calls you out to love Him. If you're trying to keep rules or ignore rules, you've missed the point of Christianity. Have a heart for God. I want you to remember that the gospel is utterly crucial. You can't be saved by keeping rules. But hear this, you'll never be saved by ignoring them either. We need forgiveness and freedom from the curse of having to keep rules to earn our acceptance with God. That comes to us through the work of Jesus on the cross, who died in our place to deliver us from the curse of having to keep rules. But we also need power and energy to change, and that comes to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not just about forgiveness, but it makes people new. It transforms people's lives. Our issue is not that we love the gospel too much, it's that we love it too little. The gospel is extravagant and scandalous. God has lavished his kindness upon you, welcomed you into his family, sent his son into the world to suffer shame and death to save you. He sends his spirit to live in your heart, to release you and liberate you, to live a holy life. You have the resources to live for Jesus in this world. Do you know what? God is more holy than a legalist thinks he is. And he is more loving than the antinomian thinks he is. That's amazing, isn't it? His holiness is higher than we can imagine. And we're sinners and his love goes deeper than we can possibly dream of. That's a gospel we can believe in. Uh, I want to say quickly, don't separate things that God puts together. Um, Faith goes with repentance. God's Holy Spirit always works through his word. Justification and sanctification go together. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Freedom and diligence. All of these things, all the time we try to separate them and make them apart when all the time God is bringing these things together. Faith and repentance, that's the key one. I wanted to say something else, but I haven't got a slide for it. I want want you just to notice this as well. That in the Christian life, we need to recognise our imperfection 
and know that conflict is inevitable. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. The sinful nature desires what's contrary to the spirit and the spirit what's contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Do you know what? Some people think becoming a Christian makes life easier. Actually, in a way, it makes it harder because now you have a new principle in your heart, God's spirit, that was never there before. You have an old nature and a new nature and you know what? They're always fighting. And that's the way it will be in this world. Some Christians think, I'm going to attain perfection. Perfection will never be attained in this life. Heaven will be where that happens. In this life, the Christian life is a struggle. It's not a hopeless struggle. It is a struggle with the promise of victory at the end. But it is a struggle. We do need to be diligent and disciplined and not lazy and ignorant of God's law. God's Spirit working in us to be holy. How does it all relate to the fruit of the Spirit then? We've had two weeks and these talks do go together as I said. Christianity is about character, not charisma. And I want you to realise as different preachers come talk about these different things. That these traits are not an exam to pass. This is not a test. Oh, I must try to be more loving. I must try to be more peaceful. No. If you make rules everything, or you make rules nothing, you will end up miserable, enslaved, and in conflict. The lesson that I hope we've been trying to learn last week and this week is that if you trust in Jesus and his death for you, and if you're trusting and living in the power of his spirit, life will sometimes be a struggle, but you will be free and empowered and inspired to be fruitful. And do you know what? God will get all the praise. Paul wrote to the Philippian church, in chapter 2 and verse 12, I'll finish with this. He said, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Amen.